This month I'm covering another controversial question. Namely, why is the Canadian Landmine Foundation raising money for landmine clearance in a distant country 20 years after the treaty that was supposed to solve this landmine problem? Why doesn't Cambodia pay for its own mine clearance? A member of the Canadian Landmine Foundation board was recently asked this question by a well-meaning but skeptical friend. It's a good question, and one that we're sure a lot of Canadians have asked since former Minister Lloyd Axworthy first championed the ban on landmines in the mid-1990s. After all, it wasn't Canada that waged a war in Vietnam, saturating the entire region in weapons and militants. No Canadians were involved in the rise of the Cambodian Khmer Rouge in 1975, nor the vicious cycle of violence and warfare that continued into the 1990s. Yet Canada and other countries have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into Cambodian demining since the 1997 Ottawa Treaty, money that could also have been spent elsewhere. Again, why should Canadians pay to remove landmines in Cambodia? Hello, my name is Paul Esau, and welcome to the fourth episode of The Diffuser. My guest today is Canadian Landmine Foundation President Dr. Alistair Edgar. Alistair is an Associate Professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, as well as a former Executive Director of ACUNS, the Academic Council of the UN. He has conducted field research in Afghanistan, Cambodia, Kosovo, and Uganda, and the focus of his current research is on post-conflict transitional justice and international projects and interventions. This is The Diffuser, presenting Alistair Edgar and the case for continued Canadian funding of Cambodian demining. Hello, Alistair, and welcome to The Diffuser. Hi, I'm happy to be joining you. I mean, uh, sort of welcome to your own podcast, because you <laughs> technically run the show, but it's yeah. great to have you on. <clears throat> so just to warn you, I'll be largely playing devil's advocate in this episode. Uh, so if I ask any really impertinent questions, like, I'm doing it for the audience, okay? <laughs> that's it's not fine. my personal opinion. No, that's fine. So first of all, you're on today to answer a very pragmatic question. I mean, you already know that one of our board members was asked this by somebody else, one of their friends. But uh, kind of the question is, why are we funding demining in Cambodia and not the Cambodians themselves? This is also related to a second question, which I touched on with Ted Patterson in the last episode, which is why are we funding demining at all when there are so many other pressing domestic and international causes Canada could be funding? So I suspect there are a couple different answers to these questions, ranging from historical ethical reasons to global internationalist reasons to political economic considerations. But I really want to hear from you. Why has Canada historically given money to demining causes in Cambodia? Uh, why are we giving money now? Why are we asking individual Canadians to fund uh, Cambodian demining through the Cambodian Landmine Fund? What is your perspective kind of on these issues? Mm -hmm. um, well, I suppose I have altruistic and pragmatic answers to those. Um, the altruistic one is... Why do we ask people to give money to cancer research? And why do people give money to cancer research if they don't have cancer or if a family member of theirs hasn't been directly touched by cancer? And you can take that across any other charitable thing that we, we ask people to, to give money to. Um, you give money 
to different things that don't directly affect you or in which your interests aren't directly engaged um, because you think it's a good thing to do, it's a right thing to do, you want to help other people, whether that be in your community, in your country, or globally. So uh, there's the altruistic one, which is there are people in more difficult circumstances than you are who need help, um, whether that be physical difficult circumstances or economic or social difficult circumstances, um, who need help, and so you're asking for help. You're being asked for help, and you can choose to, to help them or not. Um, so that's the first one. It's, the, it's a good thing to do anytime you, you judge a person or you judge a society by the way that they treat the most vulnerable, uh, those who need it the most. So how do, how, how do you respond to that? So that's one, if, if you want to do to, to take the, the altruistic uh, approach to it. Um, on a pragmatic approach, um, <clears throat> I like to remind people, there, there, there's always the, 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 the caveat uh, that people say, well, Canada didn't do things in Cambodia. Canada didn't fight in Vietnam because the, a lot of the unexploded ordnance that's sitting in Cambodia comes from U.S. bombing of Cambodia around the Vietnam War, or it comes from the aftermath of, partly the aftermath of the Vietnam War and that bombing, where the Khmer Rouge arose because Cambodia was largely destroyed by illegal American bombing. Um, and the Khmer Rouge came out of the jungle. They did the genocide in Cambodia in the mid-1970s, 75 to 79, um, and it was the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia to eliminate the Khmer Rouge uh, in 1979 and then the subsequent civil war. This is where all of this unexploded ordnance and landmines and other things uh, are coming from. Um, and it's an estimate from that period that there's six, one doesn't know, but six to ten million uh, landmines or unexploded ordnance uh, still lying around in Cambodia. Now, the, the question is, well, we weren't involved. Canada wasn't involved. We didn't do anything. So why would we, why would we even think we need to? We don't owe them anything. Um, so there I, I try to remind people of, of simple facts. Canada as a country did not get involved in the Vietnam War. But approximately while Canada took U.S. war resistors up here, uh, we also had about 30,000 Canadians uh, who volunteered to serve in the U.S. forces and about 12,000 of them fought in Vietnam, and 100-plus were killed in Vietnam. But about 12,000 Canadians volunteered, signed up to fight in Vietnam. Um, and then, then you say, okay, well, those are individuals doing that. It's true. Uh, Canadian defense industries and the Canadian economy, um, we provided about 2 to $3 billion worth of war materials to the Americans fighting in Vietnam and Cambodia. War materials meaning you know, kinetic things, things that go bang, the things that are unexploded, lying around on the ground, um, bombs, ammunition, and other things. And we also provided, or earned, if you want to put it that way, about $10 billion worth of revenue from other non-lethal supplies to the American military fighting in Vietnam. Um, the U.S. bombers, the bomber pilots who were bombing in Vietnam but also bombing in Cambodia, trained in Alberta and trained in Saskatchewan. Um, they did their bombing runs there. Uh, and as 
one of our dirty secrets that has been recognized subsequently, we also allow them to test Agent Orange uh, over in Gagetown. Uh, so we ended up having to pay Canadians who were harmed by the testing of Agent Orange. I think it was, I can't remember the exact figure. It might have been $7 million in, in compensation. So we were involved um, and we earned money. Canadian industry earned money. Canadians earned money. Canadians paid taxes on that money. So we made a lot of money out of supporting uh, and providing the goods and services to fight the Vietnam War and to do the illegal bombing in Cambodia. Um, so there's a, yes, we were actually very involved um, indirectly, uh, and we profited economically from both of those those wars. Well, that's actually shocking. I mean, we always think in Canada kind of proudly of Lester Pearson <laughs> standing up to LBJ and being picked sure. up by his lapels, you know, as LBJ shakes him outside his ranch, mm -hmm. um, and kind of the importance of Canadian leaders and in, I guess, trying to... I guess, mitigate or uh, discourage the Americans from escalating in Vietnam. But we mm. also, I think, forget that, as you said, I mean, military industrial producers in Canada made a killing, uh, yeah. both literally and figuratively off of this war. Yeah, and, and, and I should know. say, I don't say that in an accusatory way. I don't say that to, 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 to denigrate, you know, defense industries. I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm just saying, practically, we, 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 did, we, we did well. We, Canadian companies... And Canadian workers earned profits, earned salaries, uh, and were a, a, from our side, a significant part, a tiny portion of what the Americans spent on the conflict. But you're talking 12 to $15 billion that our industries made out of being part of that. So I think that really covers kind of the ethical uh, responsibility that Canadians have in some ways this conflict. That's, that, that's a very important part of this question. I also was wondering in terms of kind of uh, global internationalist or political economic reasons. So mm -hmm. why today is it efficient for Canadians to continue to support demining around the world? Sure. And what are the big reasons for trying to support demining as opposed to other uh, foreign aid causes or important kind of global causes? Sure. Um, and, and again, context, I think you know, everything is relative. Um, to put it into context to how much we're actually spending, what we're actually putting in, mm -hmm. uh, and and then why do we do that? Um, so our overseas development assistance is approximately, I'm talking 2017, 18, and 18, 19, um, approximately 025 or 0.26% of our uh, gross national income. So it's our total foreign aid budget every year is less than a quarter of, is about a quarter of 1% of our gross national income. Wow. Now, in, in which, is, which is less than the general OECD average, which is about 0.32%. So we're under all of our European or OECD um, colleagues in and how much we're putting in. And again, I'm not saying these things to be accusatory. I'm just, this is, these are the numbers. So we give about 0.26% of our, <coughs> our gross national income to overseas development assistance. Now, in 1970, Canada was one of the leading countries to push for a target for OECD countries that was 0.7% of gross national income for overseas development. So we give a, a, approximately one-third of what we set as a target 
1970 to overseas development assistance, right? So number one, it's a, it's a billion sounds like a lot, but overseas development assistance, 0.26% of our gross national income. Our federal budget, annual federal budget, is about 335 or $340 billion, somewhere around there. Um, and we're talking about five and a half or six billion dollars in in uh, overall uh, overseas development assistance. So again, it's about 1.5, 1.6% of our annual budget. Um, Or again, in comparison, our defense budget is about 26 or 27 billion dollars. So it is one fifth or so of our defense budget for all, all of our overseas development assistance. And inside of that, what we give to demining is a very, very small portion as well. Um, so it, 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 it's a microscopic amount of money in comparison to what we spend or what we earn. That's the first I think, thing. I think Mines Action Canada is that we should be spending about $35 million a year on demining in yeah. Canada in order to kind of meet our, our goals. Yeah. And, and, and we spend less than that, obviously, at the moment. We, we, we spend under 30. We, we just announced this year a boost of about, I think it was $12 billion, which took us into the upper 20s. So yeah. that that additional boost, st- before then we were giving less than half of well, 12, what we 12 thought. million, not 12, 12 million, million, sorry, yeah, 12 yeah. million dollars, yeah. Um, and, and, and that also is then spread out, that's not Cambodia, that is um, Syria, Colombia, uh, Iraq, um, I can't remember the other ones. There's five or six countries. Laos, Laos Thailand, yeah. yeah. That, so it is spread out across several different countries. Um, so the amount of money that we're actually giving um, is is tiny. Um, at the same time, if you want to, let's say, develop, if you if you're looking at at, at supporting development assistance. Um, this sounds very hackneyed and very simplistic, but to put it in a simple way, it's very hard for a country to develop. It's very hard for a country to send its children to school. It's very hard for a country to send its people out into the fields to um, to grow rice if they get blown up. Um, the landmines issue is a, one of those basic fundamentals where if you want a country to be able to do the other things that you might spend development assistance on, um, then you have to make sure that people can physically, literally walk places without being afraid of of having an arm or a leg blown off. Um, And while it is, we've had considerable success um, in a number of different countries, there are other parts of the world, certainly, where you know more landmines have been put down in Syria and in Yemen and in other countries. Mozambique, more or less landmine-free. Cambodia is getting there, but if we, when we come to talk specifically about Cambodia, I'll put it in the context uh, of figures there. It is visible that we can we can bring Cambodia to a point where um, they are more or less mine and unexploded ordnance-free. But given that we're still talking about five, six million unexploded ordnance, because it's not just landmines, it's all those American bombs for which the casings or the metals came from Canada, all those unexploded bombs that are sitting in the ground in Cambodia or in Laos or in others um, that are waiting to go, that we're still trying to, to get out of the ground. And those, those are 
everywhere. That's a depressing thought, isn't it? <laughs> it definitely is. I think we do often forget that in this conversation. I mean, landmines are part <clears throat> of the problem. If you have cluster missions that don't go off, if you have bombs or grenades or you have mortar rounds that also did not go off, I mean, those are also sitting there and rusting um, in situ in Cambodia and Thailand and Laos. And those, I guess, uh, are a significant part of that, like, 100 million-plus number of exploded ordnance that still exists in the ground around the world, yeah. and also the 10 million in Cambodia. Yeah, you, you think we're still... We're still, there are still areas in France, forests in France that are cordoned off from the First World War because they haven't been able to get all the ordnance out of there. They're not safe. And periodically, as, as land moves and some of the shells from the First World War come up to the surface, French farmers hit them on their plows and blow up. Um, and that's going back to 1914 to 1918. Uh, in the case of Cambodia, <laughs> again, sorry, to, but to put it in perspective, in all of the Second World War, the Americans dropped a pro they dropped two atomic bombs, but in terms of conventional weapons, in all of the Second World War, the Americans dropped about 180,000 tons of bombs on Japan. In the illegal bombing of Cambodia, the Americans dropped about half a million tons of bombs on Cambodia. So more than twice, two and a half times what they dropped on Japan in the entire Second World War, they dropped on the country of Cambodia. Oh my gosh! So, I've so heard again. that stat before, but it floors me every time. Yeah. So I guess, um, <coughs> in a strictly pragmatic sense, I mean, this is part of the question that we got asked by this person who asked our board member mm -hmm. about this issue. Um, it's been about twenty years now since the Landmine Treaty. More than that, since the Khmer Rouge became kind of a non-existent entity in Cambodia, yep. and the war was a pretty much over. Yep. Uh, at what point do we as Canadians who have stepped in and funded a significant amount of demining around the world, but also in Cambodia historically, at what point do we pass off this obligation to the Cambodians? Like, at mm -hmm. what point is our responsibility fulfilled and we can say, okay, now it's um, on the Cambodian Mine Action Authority or the Cambodian mm -hmm. Mine Action Center to be able to continue this process and finish demining in Cambodia. Why can't the Cambodians themselves pay for this process. <laughs> um, you're talking about uh, a country that doesn't have a huge tax base. Um, think about, uh, again, the one reason, and this isn't, this isn't guilt tripping here, um, one reason that Cambodia has uh, had a significant problem, if you can imagine an entire country with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, I mean, a quarter of their population was wiped out during the period of the Khmer Rouge. Um, the average age in Cambodia is in the early 30s because of life expectancy, but also because of the deaths that took place during the, the Khmer Rouge period, 1975 to 79. Um, it's worth... And, and, and once the Khmer Rouge were defeated, it wasn't that things stopped and simply got better. They were defeated by the Vietnamese, but because the Vietnamese were allied with the Soviets, we, the West, including Canada, supported the Khmer Rouge, the genocidal regime, supported the Khmer Rouge to sit in the UN as the government of Cambodia. And we continued. It's not that we poured money into supporting the Khmer Rouge, but we, meaning the West, the United States primarily, um, but the British as well, and Canadian industries supplying people. Um, 
we allowed or turned a blind eye to the Chinese, but also the Thais and others pouring money into supporting the Khmer Rouge so that the civil war continued in Cambodia after 1979 through to about 1991 to 93. So there was an extra 14 years tagged on at the end. And during that time, the West voted repeatedly to keep the Khmer Rouge in the UN as the representative of Cambodia because we didn't want, first of all, the Vietnamese puppet government of Cambodia, but then after the Vietnamese left, we didn't want the communist-supported government of Cambodia to sit in there. We would rather have the genocidal regime of the Khmer Rouge. Um, there, there's, there's so much stuff that sits uh, in, in the background of, of why sh you know, what's going on now in Cambodian society. They basically had two generations of genocide and then post-genocidal civil war. Um, it's very, uh, and, and there, uh, it's a small country. Um, it is a country that is primarily jungle. It is a rural agricultural country. So you dump all these explosives in there. Training and supporting explosive ordnance removal is a very expensive, very difficult enterprise. Um, it's not simply that you go out into the Cambodian countryside, you know, I've, I've worked over there, as you know, and, and things are just sitting somewhere. You have to go find them. Um, finding them and then dealing with them is a very difficult thing. Training the people to go and do it is relatively expensive. But Canadian forces have been involved in that. When, when the UN was in Cambodia under UNTAC, UN Transitional Authority in Cambodia, Canadian Armed Forces, CAF people were there and they were supporting deminers but what the west does is train the, you know we train the trainers we train the deminers and that's what we're still asking to have done now so cambodians are doing the demining cam it's not westerners who were there doing the demining it's primarily cambodian teams who are doing the demining but it's a slow very expensive relatively very everything is relative relatively expensive process and let me give you a, a, a quick couple of figures to, to put that into context so you mentioned we, we there is the cambodian mine action people there's the royal cambodian armed forces um so those parts of the, the cambodian government are doing and are supporting and are funding some of this um, but they don't have as much money as others do um, and they didn't profit off of the war that took place there. Um, from the early 1990s, when finally the Khmer Rouge were defeated and, and that period of civil war, post-Khmer Rouge government civil war came to an end, from 19, the 1990s to 2017-ish, um, we, we, the international community and the Cambodians, uh, cleared about uh, 1,500 square kilometers of, of territory. I mean, these are it's little patches, but you put all those patches together. Um, it's estimated, so that's 1990s to 2017, 20-year 20 period. Um, call it from the Ottawa Treaty until a year ago. Uh, 1,500 square kilometers. It's estimated that a, almost 2,000 square kilometers still needs to be cleared. That's 482 approximately 1,000 acres, if people think in, in acres of, of space. At current rates uh, and at current costs, you're looking at about 20 years to clear that remaining 2,000 square kilometers, 1,900 square kilometers, um, at about $7 million a year, somewhere around there. 
Um, UNDP, UN Development Program, has estimated that dealing with the demining and dealing with uh, the victims, victim assistance for those who've suffered, um, whether that be people who've been directly blown up or their families because um, the people who are getting blown up may be children and therefore those children aren't earning money, they can't do things, or it may be the mother who's in the field and then they lose that. Uh, and she's also a source of income, etc. UNDP estimates it'll cost about 440 million US dollars to finish the job in Cambodia uh, over the next 20 years. That's actually not a lot of money. Again, putting into big context, it's not a lot of money, um, but it's a lot more money than the Cambodian government has to put into this because they also have to cover costs for other things that they do. It's not just that the Cambodian government can say, and I'm, it's a political thing, but I'm not a big fan of the current Cambodian government, but nonetheless, uh, without being an apologist for them, it's not that they can just turn around and say, but we'll put all the money in, because they also have to run their country, and they don't have a huge tax base to do that, uh, as well as a, as a developing country. Vietnam, the neighbors, you know, their economy is booming. The Cambodian economy is not booming. And it's hard to do well as well when your ability to go and do things in the fields is hampered by simple accessibility. Um, it's hard to promote children's education in rural areas in Cambodia when the children are afraid to go to school at times. Um, it, it's not that the number of casualties in Cambodia has dropped considerably. So it's it's not, to put it in that sense, that there's lots and lots more ca um, casualties, even though there are more amputees per capita in Cambodia than in any other country on the planet, um, which should tell you something about what they've suffered there. Um, it's not that, but it is uncertainty. It is fear. And that's a very big... Imagine if in Canada, every time you took your... You were going to send your kids to school, you were worried that they would get part of themselves blown up and die. It, 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 it's that constant fear. That, that's the kind of problem that sits behind what I describe as a you know, national post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you, you've always got that concern that something will happen. In the rural areas, if you're in Phnom Penh, no. You know, Phnom Penh or Siem Reap and go to Angkor Wat, those are tourist resorts. They're great. Although I'd suggest if you went to Siem Reap and Angkor Wat, you didn't walk too far out past the temple areas and into places that might not have been cleared of unexploded ordnance. Um, but, but these are issues that, at a micro level, make moving that country's economy forward very difficult as well. So 20 years at 400, $440 million American to deal with the vast majority and maybe be able to declare... Uh, Cambodia uh, landmine free. It's well past its its target. Um, Cambodia had set itself, or we had set for Cambodia, the target, I think, of 2019, 2020. It was 2009, extended to 2019. Yeah, yeah. A couple, a couple of years ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it <laughs> it is a slow... Th this is not something that you hurry. You don't hurry demining. Uh, you make sure you do it right. Um, and as I mentioned before, it isn't just that it's a simple territory where everything sits on the ground it's it's a lot of it is jungle a lot of the villages are you know it's villages in rural areas 
Um, a lot of it is is rice paddies. It's you know the typical cliche that we think of those areas, but that means these things are very hard to find. Uh, they don't sit on the surface, and over time and with changes in weather uh, and floods and other things, areas in in Mozambique that we thought were landmine free, when they had a flood, all of a sudden those areas weren't landmine free anymore because things had come up from the ground and were scattered, and they had to do it again. Um, so, you know, it, this is an iterated problem that you deal with in a country where the terrain isn't friendly to simply finding things, um, where, as you know, our explosive ordnance disposal team, Team 5, uh, regularly, on a weekly basis, finds old Vietnamese or Chinese or Soviet or American uh, weapons, or uh, sorry, unexploded ordnance, uh, cluster munitions, bombs, shells, grenades, um, things lying around in the fields that, that children want to pick up because they look like toys. Uh, so they're regularly finding these things or being called out to them. Um, so, that, yeah, it's a big problem still. But it is in this case, it's actually one, unlike France, where they're estimating at the current rate five or 600 more years of, of dealing with the aftermath of the First World War. In Cambodia, we're talking about invest the money, invest the time, and in two decades, you could actually have removed all of the things that all of its neighbors dropped on it. Well, thank you, Alistair. I think by every metric, I mean, economically, politically, historically, and ethically, that was an amazing answer. I, I just wonder as well, I mean, my final question for you, obviously, you've talked a lot about how we measure progress in mine action and demining. Mm -hmm by amount of land cleared, I mean, square kilometers, square hectares, square acres. <clears throat> um, our partner in Cambodia, the Cambodian Self-Help Demining Organization, um, really doesn't measure their progress in that way because they're responding to call-outs, I mean, individual mm -hmm. requests from villagers to remove ordnance or landmines that they've, they've found or spotted in their communities. So um, can you tell us a bit about kind of what the importance is of that sort of demining and why... Can we fund uh, CSHD through organizations like like the Canadian Landmine Foundation is actually very important? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, in a sense, you, you've given the answer, which is communities, people are still in their daily lives coming up into, bumping up into things that can kill them or blow them into pieces, um, blow off an arm or blind them or blow off a foot. They're still finding these things every day. Um, one landmine team, one team of four, five, or 10, or 15 people uh, cannot scour an entire area. They don't, you can't just wander around randomly day and night looking for things. So there's so much stuff still sitting around there that people walking in, in the fields, walking in the forests, walking on paths, find them. Again, the land moves, you know, temperatures change. Seasons change, things come up from the surface that were, you could walk down a path and everything is fine. And then, and then three, three months later, something has worked its way up out of the system as the land heaves. Um, people find those in a day, on a daily basis. So they need to have teams that can come and safely deal with that because they can't. You, you can't ask your family or your granddad or you to simply walk up and go, what kind of weapon is that? And how do I, how do I move it safely? Um, and how, how do I dispose of it? So having these teams that are literally on call um, 
that they can respond to this is critical. Uh, it helps them, to, they can move the stuff out of people's way. Those people can see it being moved out of the way. They know that there's assistance and support. And again, it's not Westerners doing that. It is Cambodians doing that for Cambodians. But they need financial support to do that. And, and the Cambodian government is doing some of it. Um, and they are providing some support. Um, but it's not enough. And again, from our perspective, it's a, it's a tiny, tiny amount of money. But for those local communities, when, when you can say, yeah, we got rid of the munitions that were between our village and the school, or between our village and the market, or we got rid of the munitions that were on the paths that we take to go out into the fields to work, then you've got more confidence that you can actually do things on a daily basis. Um, so Cambodia, we, we are providing a small amount of money for Cambodians to help Cambodians. Um, having said a small amount of money, of course, as you know, um, every dime is valuable to us. Um, the, the, for the Landmines Foundation, if you want to do a self-help advert for us, um, we deal in relative, what we, we struggle to find money um, and we deal in relatively small amounts of money, uh, but we, we deal in small amounts of money that, that save lives and make enormous differences for people over in Cambodia. Thank you very much, Alistair. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom on the diffuser this episode. I mean, it's a heavy topic, but I think that uh, once again, you've really proved how important it is that we continue demining around the world, and especially in Cambodia. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. Podcast is a production of the Canadian Landmine Foundation with music from Paul McLeod and recording help from Matthew Morden.